is from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. It's on page 2 in your pew Bibles. It's titled The Fall of Man. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the, woman, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the, said to the woman, "'What is this you have done?' The woman said, "'The serpent deceived me, and I ate it.'" The next reading comes from Romans 5, verses 12 to 17. It's on page 798 of your Bibles. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men, because all sinned. For before the law was given, sin was in the world. But sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign through the one man, Jesus Christ? It's good to see you. If you haven't met before, my name is Paul. I'm the pastor here. Uh, Just before we uh, look at Genesis chapter 3, I wanted to share with you a letter of encouragement. Uh, Many of us here uh, know uh, Billy. Uh, Billy used to pop into church from time to time. Uh, He's an alcoholic. Uh, We as a church uh, helped uh, to get him down to a rehab center in South Australia. Uh, This week he wrote us this letter. Uh, Dear church, hi, it's me, Billy. How are you all going? 
I hope all is well for you. As for me, I'm going very well. My life is beginning to change here in Caravan, that's the rehab center. I'd like to say sorry for the things I have done. I do hope you could forgive me. My life was a disaster, drinking all the time and all my life, living back at Greenway and on the street. Thank you for getting me here as I was in serious trouble. I've been in Caravan for about two months. I've begun to work and sort my life out. I've made a decision to step forward to break the bondage in my life, to break my alcohol addiction. I'm here getting a lot of help with counseling to work through things in my life. Um, I will be here for a while. I do hope you would, write, you would write to me. My address is on the paper. I will finish it here, but I will continue to change uh, some stuff in my life. Take care. I'll write again soon. Say hi to everyone for me. That's encouraging, isn't it? Let's pray for Billy and then pray for us. If you'd like to write to him, I've got his address, so please do see me at the end of the service. Uh, Father, thank you for your uh, abundant love. Thank you for your grace and your kindness to us. Thank you for bringing Billy into our lives and for the conversations that we've had and for uh, the way that you have now placed him in this rehab center. Uh, thank you for the staff down there and pray that you would help them to help him to break his addictions. Uh, Lord, I thank you for uh, the Christians you've placed in his life and pray that as they model to him and teach him about Jesus, that you would liberate him as he understands how much you love him through Christ. And now, Father, as we come to look at the scriptures, Lord, we pray that you would work powerfully in each one of us. And may my words uh, and the attitude of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight. And we ask that for Jesus' sake. Amen. If you, could, if you had to answer this one question, how would you answer it? Simple question, uh, what is wrong with the world that you live in? Just think about that question. What is wrong with the world that we live in? I was reading a newspaper yesterday, Sydney Morning Herald. I don't normally, not, no, normally spot these things, but you know. Front page, Australian swine flu. Uh, the whole Udgate affair with Rudd and Turnbull. Uh, lifting the lid on NRL sex drugs and groupies. Queensland origin team, drunken night. Costello saying, I'm misunderstood. Page three, you've got uh, parents charged over an insurance claim. Page five, you've got the whole Moran murders. Same-sex couples way of changing benefits. Uh, bad peaches were nothing compared to buck passing. Policeman sentenced for lying to commission. I just read this paper just going, this is a crazy mixed-up world. You've got lying, you've got slander, you've got gossip, you've got greed, you've got sexual immorality, you've got divorce, you've got people who are just getting what they want out of this world, they don't care who they hurt, as long as they're happy. It's a crazy world, isn't it? I was in, um, in India a few years ago, and as we drove through, through a place uh, called Salem, uh, there was slums there, uh, there were just dogs all over the place, and there were people who were lying half dead, and people just walked past them and didn't bat an eyelid. And you think, oh, that's just the slums of India. A couple of years ago, a guy lived in Greenway, the housing commission down the road. He died, and no one found his body for two weeks. And that's the crazy world that we live in. 
Let's make it more personal. What's wrong with your world? What's wrong with the world that you live in? It might be loneliness or depression. You might have been hurt by someone deeply. It might be broken relationships. It might be that you yourself are this arrogant, proud person that you don't care who you hurt. What is wrong with the world? We live in a crazy country where the most popular TV program is actually entertaining and celebrating murder. Underbelly. It's just entertaining, watching people sleep around and kill each other. Let me say, friends, to understand what's wrong with the world, you've got to understand Genesis chapter 3. If you don't get this chapter, the rest of the Bible will make no sense. If you don't get this chapter, uh, your life will make no sense. If you don't get this chapter... (laughs) You'll go through life just thinking that's just the way it is. But if you do get Genesis 3, you'll begin to make sense of sin and sickness and sadness and Satan and selfishness and disappointments and broken relationships and just this chaotic world that we live in. It's one of the most important chapters in the whole Bible. So there's no pressure on me tonight as I, as I preach. Tonight's slightly different. Uh, rather than just having three points, we're going to walk through the text for about 10 to 15 minutes and just spend the last 10 minutes looking at three quick points. If you've not been here, Genesis 1 and 2, the first two chapters of the Bible, are this picture of, of harmony and beauty and intimacy and perfection. You've got this God who creates everything from the, the most beautiful stars in the sky to the most beautiful men and women. (laughs) Everything is created by him, everything belongs to him. And you've got this picture of men and women uh, relating to God with obedience and trust and dependence. And men and women relating to each other uh, with unity and intimacy and no shame. And you've got men and women living in God's world. And yeah, there's, there's no locks on any doors. And there's no word for sorry or forgiveness, because it's just perfect. That's the world that we saw. And God is good, you know. He gave them blessing upon blessing and life and freedom. They could do whatever they wanted in this world. He had one thing they couldn't do. Just one thing they couldn't do. So in chapter 2, verse 16, Genesis 2, verse 16 on page 2. Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden. Do what you want. But you mustn't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Beauty, perfection, harmony. And you turn the page and everything changes. The mood changes from harmony to discord, from trust to suspicion. It's a bit like what happened to me. I went to bed Friday night feeling perfectly healthy. Woke up Saturday morning just feverish and feeling sick and going, how did that happen? Where did that come from? You know, if you go outside, it's a beautiful sunny day. And, oh, glorious, just wear a t-shirt today. And suddenly the clouds come over, massive hell story. How did that happen? That's Genesis 2 to Genesis 3. Everything changes. It's no longer man ruling over God and women ruling over the animals. It's now animals talking to men and women who talk back to God. And that relationship with God is not based on obedience but disobedience. And the the relationship with each other, it's not based on love and and respect. It's based on 
fighting and bickering and dysfunctionality and death. Look at it with me. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent, it would be really helpful if you just had your Bibles open. The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. The word crafty is not a virtue, it's a vice. And we have the first question in the whole of history. He said to the woman, did God really say you mustn't eat from any tree in the garden? So notice how the the serpent changes the word for God. It's no longer the Lord God, the personal, intimate uh, God. It's now just God, that out there, distant creator God. And did God really say this? There's that that skepticism. There's the, the questioning and the doubting. And when you hear the question, did God really say that you can't eat from any tree? What do you say back? What's the answer? No. God said you're free to eat from any tree. Eat what you want. Just the one thing you can't do. And the woman at this point, she should have listened. She should have said to the serpent, shut up. I'm not going to listen. But she doesn't. She kind of get, she's kind of drawn into this sort of debate. And she tries to correct the serpent in verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, notice what she misses out. We may eat from any of the trees. No, no, she reduces God's provision. She just says, we may eat from the trees in the garden. And then she adds something in verse 3. But God did say, you mustn't eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you mustn't touch it, or you will die. God never said you mustn't touch it. But she's kind of making God a bit too harsh and a bit too repressive. And and the serpent grabs that and says, oh, you won't surely die, verse 4. First time in the Bible that God's word is blatantly contradicted. Now, this is a moment of choice. It's a choice that you and I face every day. Will you listen to the world or listen to God's word? Will you listen to, to creatures or will you listen to your creator? The serpent is so seductive. He's smooth, he's calculating, he's slick. You surely won't die. In many ways, he's right, isn't he? Because Adam didn't die. It was another 900 years before Adam died. But in another way, he's completely wrong because when God, says you won't sh- you, when God says you will die, he's not just meaning physical death. We'll see more of that later. And what's he promising down in verse 5? For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God. You will know good and evil. That's what he tempts her with. You want to be like God. Do you want to be like God? Do you want to be like God? Wouldn't it be great to be like God? Wouldn't it be great if you were like God? You could just rule your own life the way you wanted to do it. Do you spot the irony? Men and women were made in the likeness of God, in the image of God. They already are like God. You can't get any more like God than being a man or being a woman. But they're sucked in with this idea, yeah, I could just rule this world and I could be boss of what I want to do. And so the story reaches a climax in verse 6. This is a tension, will she or won't she? Verse 6, when the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desired for gaining wisdom, she took it and she ate it. And she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And the woman did the, the only thing that God told her not to do. The one thing that God said, don't do this, and she did it. And with that one act, the whole of history has changed. Look at the language of verse 6. See if you can spot it. 
the woman saw the fruit was good. She saw it was good. Where have you heard that language before? God saw and it was good. God saw and it was good. It's back to Genesis chapter 1, isn't it? Except now it's the woman being like God, seeing and saying, yeah, that's good, I'll have that. And so she took it and she ate it. And she gave it to her husband. Where was her husband? He was with her. He was right next to her. What did he do? Absolutely nothing. See, the husband should have said, stop it. What are you doing, woman? Don't listen to this. Obey God. Don't obey the serpent. But he didn't. So he took it and he ate it. And that was the decisive act of disobedience. The Bible tells us, Romans 5, we heard it read, through the one man's sin, through Adam's sin, sin entered the world like, like a virus, like a disease. We're all infected with this thing called sin. Uh, listening to the, creator rather than the, cre- the creatures rather than the creator. Uh, like Eve, following her impressions, doing what she wanted, what made her feel good and ignoring the God who made her. And the serpent was right, down in verse 7. The eyes of both of them were opened. I always find verse 7 a bit of an anticlimax. Because you expect this great enlightenment. Wow, what are they, they going to know? <laughs> what are they going to know when their eyes are opened? What did they know, verse 7? They knew they were naked. That's all they know. But that innocence and that vulnerability is now just gone. They're now embarrassed, they're now ashamed, they're now awkward. But more than that, they now hide from God. Verse 8, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he walked in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. First, I don't think that the unusual thing in verse 8 is that God was walking in the garden. I presume that happened every day in Eden. I presume back in creation that God every day would walk with his people, you know, side by side with his people, chatting with his people, chatting with their God. There's that intimacy and that's perfection there where they say, yeah, listen to the God. Oh, yeah, awesome. What's unusual about verse 8 is that man and woman hid. They're afraid and they feel guilty and that trust and that innocence and that dependence is all gone. And the trees that were supposed to offer fruit and provide food They weren't supposed to be a place to play hide and seek. And so God speaks in verse 9. The Lord God called to the man, where are you? Notice he talks to the man first, where are you? It's a stupid question, isn't it? It's a really stupid question. Why is the God who is omnipotent and omniscient, he knows everything, he sees everything, why is he saying, where are you? You ever played hide-and-seek with a three-year-old? And they go and stand behind the door, and their foot's poking out, and you can see it, and you go, where are you, Amy? I can't see you. Where are you? And you want them to come out and to laugh as being found. It's kind of like God is saying, I know where you are, but Adam, I want you to step forward and to come before me and admit you've done wrong. But Adam won't. So God is gracious again. The man answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid. I was naked and I hid, verse 10. And God says, who told you you were naked? Like a a, a parent prodding their child. Who told you? Come on, tell me. And then the classic answer in verse 12, 
Man does exactly what's happened throughout the whole of history. What, what do you do when you feel guilty? What do you do when you've done wrong? What do you do when you're embarrassed? You'll blame anybody but yourself. You look for a way out. Who can you blame? Who's, to, who's at fault here? And that's what man does. He blames the woman and the woman blames the snake. Now what's God's reaction? I want you to imagine that you come before the woman or the man that you love more than anything else in the world. And you've made a beautiful thing for them. You spend hours agonizing it and crafting it and you give it to them because you love them. And they take this object and they look at this object and they laugh at it and they grab it and they just smash it and they go, that's stupid. How are you going to feel at that point? Wouldn't you want to like, grab back everything that you've ever given them, all the good things you've given them and say, okay, that's fine, you don't want that? I'll take everything else back as well. That's exactly how God should feel, you know. They just laugh in his face and he has every right to say, well, I'll take everything else back then. But he doesn't. He just curses them. His judgment is right, his judgment is fair. What are the curses? He starts with the animals in verse 14. With the, with the serpent, the two curses are humiliation and hostility. The humiliation is that they will crawl on their bellies, verse 14, and they'll eat dust all the days of their life. They'll be the lowest of low, the uncleanest animal. And then it's hostility. Verse 15, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. And that's been true of history, isn't it? Every time you see a, a serpent or a snake, what are they trying to do to the human being? They're trying to, to, to fang them and to bite them. And what's your reaction when you see a snake? You want to stamp it on its head. Uh, but it's deeper than that. But we'll come to that later. Uh, for the curse on the woman, verse 16, I think God takes the, the two things that are supposed to be the most beautiful thing for, for the women. Uh, having children and and having a husband. But now when they have children, verse 16, there's going to be pain in childbirth. And in a marriage, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. As one writer put it, instead of to love and to cherish, it's to desire and to dominate. But for the man, the curse is longest because he's the most responsible. And so cursed are you, verse 17, cursed is the ground because of you and through painful toil you'll eat of it all the days of your life. So every meal will involve pain and labor and toil because there'll be thorns and there'll be thistles. And then death enters the world. For dust you are and to dust you will return. Let's wrap up the text. Let's see God's goodness. Verse 20, God could have wiped them out. God could have killed them. He doesn't. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. And then he makes clothes for them in verse 21, makes garments of skin for them. And spot the kindness in verse 22. The Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He mustn't be allowed to reach out his hand and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. That's not a punishment. That, that, that's God's kindness. He wants to protect them from taking from the tree of life that means that they would live forever in this fallen, sinful state. And then he banishes them from the garden in verse 23. He puts them outside the garden and verse 24, he places on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. 
Let's think about that for the moment. We're supposed to join the dots, I think. Inside of Eden is a place of beauty. Uh, we're told in Genesis 1 and 2 that precious stones are there and gold are there. And God is there. The holy God is present in the garden. On the east side, there's a cherubim to stop people from entering into the holy place, entering into the holy of holies, entering to be with God. Now what's going through your mind? Come forward a few thousand years and you've got a tabernacle. And there's a holy of holies where God dwells. And it's a beautiful place with stones and gold and onyx. And on the east side, there's a cherubim to stop people going in to meet with God because they can't anymore. Why can't we meet with God? Why can't we just walk into the presence of God? Because he is holy. And because of that sin of of the first man and the first woman, you are sinful. Your wickedness, your rebellion, your ungodliness, your selfishness, your pride, your arrogance, your envy, it stops you just seeing God face to face and you can't go there. And friends, that's what it means when they did die. Adam and Eve did die. Yes, they lived another 900 years, but for those 900 years, they could not walk daily with God and they couldn't talk to God and they'd lost that intimacy and they've lost that beauty. And that's what you and I are craving for, isn't it? That's why we were born We were made as human beings in the image of God to know God and to talk to God and have this beautiful relationship with him. But from the moment you take your first breath, you can't. Because our world is marred by sin. And that's why, my friends, we are living almost this living death. Cut off from God. Now this event changes history. So my three points, and they're all quick tonight, is this. What is sin? What is the essence of sin? You've got to grasp this. If you're here for the first time, we don't talk about this every week, but unless you understand sin, you will never understand who Jesus is and why he came to die. What is sin? When was the last time you heard someone use the word sin? It's not in the news. Yeah, there's murders and there's rapes and there's depravity and greed, but you never call it sin on the news. And you walk into church and you don't use the word sin. You use words like messed up or failed or rebellion or done wrong. Sin is not just a moral relapse. Sin is not just doing things wrong. Sin is not just the really, really bad things in life. This is sin. Sin is looking at your God who who made you, who loves you, who knows you, who cares for you, who you belong to, and you look at him and you say, actually, God, I don't need you, and I'll do what I want. And who cares about you, God? It's looking at God and saying, actually, I know better than you. I'll be my own God. I'll be my own boss. That is sin. It's a relational word. I'll decide what is good for me. It's kicking God off his throne and saying to God, you can't tell me what to do. I'll ignore you, and I'll do what I want. Notice how many times I use the word I there or me there, because that's sin. What I want, when I want it, and who cares about anybody else? Isn't that the essence of it, you know? Why do people murder? Because they don't care about other people. Why are people greedy? Because it's all about me. Why have you got politicians who are corrupt? Because it's all about them and their power. What's the root of sin? You are. You are. Because you think that you are the little boss of your own little world. And you'll make decisions that you want to do because it makes you feel good. 
and me. Now behind it is someone called Satan. Uh, Revelation chapter 12 Verse 9 says, that ancient, that ancient serpent called the devil who leads the whole world astray. The ancient serpent called the devil. It picks up the serpent figure of Genesis 3 and says, actually, that's Satan, that's the devil. And I mention that because I think some of us here in the church as Christians, we're, we're almost naive to the fact there's a, a spiritual realm uh, where there's Satan who, who is longing for this world to walk away from God. He did it with Adam, he did it with Eve, he did it with David and Abraham and Paul and Peter and James and John and Jesus. He'll do it with you, he'll do it with me. Don't be naive. He, he's not terrifying, he, he's slick and he's calculating, he's cool, he's, he's crafty. He's called the schemer. And how did he do it with Adam? How did he do it with Eve? He, he twists God's word. Remember what he said? He said to the woman, did God really say? Causing them to doubt God's word. Did God really say that? Isn't that what you do and what I do every day? Did God, did God really say, that love your enemies and forgive those who hate you? Because I don't like that, so I'm not going to do that. Did, did God really say that you're not to show favoritism? When someone walks into church, whether they're rich or poor, treat them exactly the same. I don't like that, so I won't do that. Uh, did God really say that I'm to be sexually pure outside of a marriage? Because I don't like that, because I like my little sex life as it is. Uh, did God really say that uh, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and, and no one comes to the Father except through me? I don't like that, because what about all the other religions? So I'll ignore that. Fill in the blanks in your life. Did God really say blank, blank, blank? What is it that you don't like that God has said, if you actually know your Bible, because most of us don't. What is it in the Bible that you don't like that what God said? And so you'll just, you'll just rip that page out because, hey, I don't like it and I don't feel like obeying it. That's the essence of sin. Doubting, twisting, and disobeying God's word. It's a choice we all face every day. I do it every day. I read something and I think, you know, oh, gosh, that's hard. And actually that makes me feel uncomfortable. It's going to be costly for me, so I'd rather not do that. But who am I going to obey? Me, the world, or, or my heavenly Father? Friends, you're surrounded by a world who will tell you to love yourself and to esteem yourself and to do what makes you feel good. And Genesis 3 shouts at you, no, 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 please don't listen to the world. Listen to your Heavenly Father. I just wonder, I just wonder whether many of us here, Christians, yeah, who believe in Jesus, we've never really experienced a depth of intimacy with God that we could have, even in a fallen world. We'll never have the true intimacy to heaven, but... I wonder whether some of us here are missing out on a depth of intimacy with God in the here and now because we just don't take our sin seriously. We think actually we're quite good and we're quite nice and you haven't understood the depth of your depravity. (laughs) Because until you do that, then you can never actually understand the beauty of your Savior. What's the consequence of sin? The man and the woman, first thing they do is what? They hide. 
They're afraid of God. God is no longer the wise, loving ruler and their intimate father. God is now this tyrant who they need to hide from. And so it's crazy. They shrink behind a tree. But that's the consequence of sin, that we feel guilty and we feel embarrassed, and so we try to run away from God. It's almost like when we sin, we become dumb. Because we know that when we sin, the first thing we should do is run to God. And we can go to God and we can repent and we can say, I'm so sorry, God. But we don't, do we? Our shame and our embarrassment and our guilt means we run exactly the opposite way. And we get as far away from him as we possibly can. And actually, we think most of the time we're hiding because we think he can't see. I'm going to ask you, I'm going to be really direct, and I'm sorry I'm being very direct tonight. No, I'm not sorry. It's a tough topic. I'm going to ask you directly. What sin are you committing? What sin are you committing right here, right now, habitually and regularly and continually? What is it that you know it's wrong? You know that God hates it. But you're running away from God and you're too ashamed and embarrassed to come to him and admit it. You know what it is. I know what it is in my life. And we're so dumb because we just think that God can't see. Oh yeah, I'm just slandering all the time, but no one really sees it. Yeah, God sees. Oh, I come to church and I get dressed up because I want to flirt. But no one really sees it. No, God sees it. Oh, I go to work and I lie and I abuse people to get what I want, but no one can really see it. Yeah, no, God sees it. What is it in your life that God sees that you're just afraid to go to him and say, I'm sorry? The second consequence is what I call the I factor. Because when sin enters the world, life is all about me. Who's the most important person in the world? Who's the most important person in your life? For most of us, it's me. That's how the pronoun changed in verse 10. For the first time in the Bible, a pronoun is used, I is not used of God, it's used of man. A man is saying, I heard you and I was afraid and I was naked and I hid. And verse 12, I ate it and I, 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 I. It's all about me. And I do all the time, you know. Ignore the good things that God gives me and all the blessing he pours out to me. And there might be one thing in my life that I kind of become fixated on. <laughs> if only I had that thing, then my life would be complete. What is it for you? you know, I, I want marriage so desperately. And if I had that thing, then I'd be complete. And so... I'll do what I need to do to find a husband or to find a wife. I don't care who they are. As long as I'm married, then I'll be happy. I want to be successful. I want to be successful, so I will take the job that causes me to, to work 14 to 16 hours a day and never see my wife and never see my kids, and I'll do whatever I need to do in that job, and I'll lie and I'll abuse people just to get what I want because life's about me. And my leisure time, I need it because life's all about me. I want dot, dot, dot. Was it that you want that God says no to? <laughs> that you then become frustrated and angry about and say, I don't care, God. 
hate it in myself. I hate it in myself. I spot it all the time. I can fixate on this thing that I really, really want because I'm the most important. I'm not. God is, not me. The third thing that we do is we blame other people. Nothing's changed. Nothing new under the sun. Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed the serpent. And the world calls that spin. Blaming everybody and anybody. And the Bible says, no, it's sin. I was chatting to somebody this week, not, not at this church, another church, and someone who I'm counseling, who they are, they're addicted to a particular sin. And I sat there for over half an hour, and I just listened to, I was, I was preparing this sermon, this was on my, on, my, on my mind, and I listened to the excuses they made. They talked about their upbringing, and the parents, their mum or their dad, and they were really to blame. And they talked about friends who had led them astray and they got sent to the wrong, the wrong people group and so it was a friend's fault. And they talked about the society because everyone's doing it in society and uh, if only the government would do this then it might stop this and then I'd be okay. And I just thought, you know, when are you going to stop and put your hand up and say, I did it. I'm at fault. Because that's sin. We blame anybody but ourselves. Did you spot in verse 12 that Adam even blamed God? The man said, the woman you put here with me. You kind of sense him saying, God, it's your fault. If you hadn't made this woman, then I wouldn't have sinned. And again, I think we do that. God, if you hadn't brought that trouble or trial into my life, then I wouldn't have sinned. God, if you hadn't taken me to that place with those people, then I wouldn't have sinned. And we're just too cowardly to stand up and just go, yep, God, I did it. And the last thing we did, last consequence is just death. Death enters the world. Death is not part of God's perfect creation. But death is all around us. We see it every day. I'm sure you've gone through it in your life, people you love, who you've lost. It's not the way it's supposed to be. But I know this is a depressing sermon, but I want to try and just ram this home so you can feel the weight of your sin. Please don't leave here tonight and think, gosh, Paul was a bit stern tonight. Leave here tonight and go, yeah, I'm wrong with the world because I'm not the good, nice, perfect person that I like to think I am. Why am I being so lengthy and so firm on this? Because until you understand the blackness of your sin, you will never understand the glory of your Savior. So what's the solution? Lastly, and very quickly, the solution to sin. What I love about Genesis 3 is that there's no way back. God chose not to kill the man and the woman and just start again. He could have done that. He chose not to. He chose to go forward. And you've got the rest of the story. It takes that long to get through. God's way is forward. It's about redeeming us with new bodies and new creations and clothing us not with loincloths but with, with the glory of Christ. But please note, God was gracious even back in Eden. How do you spot God's grace or God's kindness in Genesis chapter 3? He was kind because he didn't kill them immediately. He was kind because he gave them a future. He was kind because he gave them clothing. 
He was kind because he protected them from the tree of life. But I think the key is in verse 9. You'll probably have missed it. The Lord God called to the man, Where are you? Look at it again. The Lord God called to the man, Where are you? That is God's kindness. That is God's grace. Because God would, would not let man hide from him forever. God would not let man go. Man hides from God, but God wants, and God is knock, knock, knocking, saying, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? And we run from God, and we run away from God, and we try and hide from God, and God kind of going, where are you? Where are you? It's kind of like you wake up and think, wow, there's a creation, and there's a universe and there's people and, and God is knock, knock, knocking at your life saying, come on, wake up. I'm here. And that's why Jesus came, my friends, to seek and to save the lost. He came to pursue you. He came to find you. You sinners, he came to, to heal you and to forgive you and to redeem you. You see, God provided a temporary solution in the Old Testament called a tabernacle where they would sacrifice the blood of animals. But then Jesus steps into our world and look at this verse, Hebrews chapter 10. It's on the screen. Therefore, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place. Spot that. We have confidence to walk back into Eden. We have confidence to meet God face to face. To have that intimacy with God again. How? By the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. So let us draw near to God with confidence. You know when Jesus stepped into the world? Remember the man that they brought to him who was paralyzed? He didn't say to them, your legs are healed. He said, son, your, your sins are forgiven. And that's why Jesus came, to forgive sins. Yeah, he sees your sin. He sees your wretchedness. He sees your blackness. He sees your wickedness. He sees everything that you do that nobody else will see. And he offers you forgiveness because of Jesus and we enter by the blood of Jesus one man the perfect innocent man who walked to Calvary who had nails through his wrists who hung on the cross to die and as blood was shed for you he cried out the words it is finished your sins are taken your sins are forgiven your sins are covered you've got to understand this and so when God sees you, he doesn't see your sin and your wickedness and your blaming other people and I want, I want, I want. What he sees is you clothed, clothed in the blood of his son. And so you can stand there forgiven and redeemed. We're about to sing, Behold a man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It's right that we grieve our sin. It's right that we weep over our sin. But it's also right that we look up to the cross with wonder and amazement and joy in our hearts that he would forgive me, the worst of sinners. There's a hint of it back in Genesis 3 with the crushing of the head, but only a hint. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Because it's not just about the future. You know, as forgiven sinners, it's not just about waiting for heaven and waiting to see God face to face. It changes everything now. Because you can walk out this door tonight knowing you're forgiven 
and know you can have that joy and that intimacy and that presence of God in your life. But I say it again, I wonder whether some of us are here are not experiencing that depth of intimacy with God because we're just complacent about our sin. When you see the depth of your depravity, oh, the glory of Christ is so much greater. Let me pray. You will call him Jesus. You will call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Lord Jesus, you are the most beautiful name in history. But you will step into our world and go to Calvary for us so that we can be forgiven. For the depth of our depravity and yet the wonders of your love. Fill us afresh tonight with a, a realization of our sin and then a wonder again at Calvary. And Lord, there may be people here tonight who, who for the first time in their life have understood they understood that they've actually looked at you in the face and they've ignored you and they've rebelled against you and for the first time in their life they've understood they need forgiveness. Oh Lord, if there are people here tonight, I pray that you would bring them home, keep knocking, keep calling to them. They may say Jesus and fall at his feet and ask for forgiveness and find that forgiveness and enjoy eternal life. I ask that for Jesus' sake. Amen.